Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It is Sunday evening, the 6th day of July, 2014, and I'll be live here for the next hour. So thanks for making me a part Thanks for inviting me into your living room and into your mind. I will not try to mind control you or dissuade your judgment in any way. I will just try to present to you the facts as I see them and take from it what you will. This is not a lecture by any stretch of the imagination. It's just an informative show to try to get by the status quo, and then we can somehow find a way to dismantle this increasingly large mind control apparatus that engulfs everyone to a certain extent. Let me turn off my notifications as we get going here. Oh, and where to begin? Okay, so... <clears throat> the the essence of the show tonight, as show notes here, what I wanted to cover. Um, number one, we were getting into a um, an issue on on Facebook. I, I didn't know that this post was going to start such a firestorm, and it was uh, it was about uh, libertarianism is the new communism, and it was an article that we'll get into here in a little bit. Also, want to get into the new uh, NSA revelations, uh, a little bit more of the same stuff that we already knew. But hopefully, it's starting to to, to understand the the magnitude of what we're facing and um, and why this kind of ties into the idea of libertarianism and communism, or basically anything outside of the status quo uh, being demonized. As also get into uh, Hillary Clinton talking about her speaking engagements and how, no, this money that we really make goes to um, goes to a charity. It goes to our, you know, to our foundations. So nice. Yeah, because we all know that foundations are never caught doing anything, you know, illegal. Say is illegal, something like this. <laughs> but I will also be talking about that. Get also be talking to, about the. Um, the new airport measures that are going in all across the world, if you're flying into the United States, remember, lay to the free home of the slaves. Um, make sure your cell phone turns on or that ain't making the trip. And your laptop or your iPad. Pretty soon, it's, if you don't just strip down completely naked, then um, then you're never going to be allowed to, to come into the U.S. So hold on one second here. Uh, I've got um, my guest calling in here, and uh, I have no way to add him to this call. Here we go. I think I can add him to the call. If I lose you guys, actually, I probably will lose you. Um, Stand by, everybody. Welcome to live radio. Sorry for the hold music, everybody. We are actually back live now, so thank you so much. Oh, joy conversation this evening, albeit um, an ever-pleasant face. Uh, you guys know him as Josh Wiley. Um, thank you so much for joining me tonight on the show, man. I was actually um, just chatting earlier, kind of setting up the show, the talks that I wanted to cover some of the issues that um, 
that we're facing here in this such a free country that now if you come into the United States, your cell phone, laptop, or pager, or whatever electronic device that you're bringing with you must be able to turn on. Otherwise, you are a terrorist and you have to leave it behind with you, coming from every nation other than uh, China and Asia. So I was just going to share that with you. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But, uh, Josh, thank you so much for for joining us, as always, for the designated uh, impromptu cocktail hour here at the We Are Not Cattle. Well, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having me. me. I, don't I don't have a cocktail, but I did manage to scrounge up an Angry Orchard uh, gluten-free hard cider. So. There you go. Well, hey, you know, at least one of us is living healthy at this point. Yeah. That's a good I, thing. I don't know, I don't I don't know, know if any el- alcohol consumption can be deemed healthy, but that's about as close to healthy as it gets. I Absolutely. Suppose. It cleans your liver out. It's completely fine. It's completely fine. It's a good deal. <laughs> So anyway, um, let's get into uh, what started this kind of firestorm on Facebook, and I hate to say that, but um, uh, it's something that we talk about at nauseum, man. I sent you the uh, the article. I don't know if you got a chance to read it. Um, the Libertarians are the New Communists. Did you get a chance to read that uh, article? I skimmed that article. It was, okay. uh... We're gonna. I'm going to read some subsections because some of it's really incredible, but first I had some people that were, um, that were in a um, grammatical disagreement – over what libertarians are. So what, um, what some of my, um, the guys on the message board wanted me to do on Facebook was to define the terms libertarian, to define an anarchist, and to define who they deem, quote-unquote, in this article, the libertarians, which are basically no more than tea partiers for the most part, and, um, and why and to understand that anybody outside of the status quo now if you have any kind of you know belief that there should be governance other than the the hand of god from the united states coming down to oppress you then um, you are sir an extremist so as a fellow extremist i welcome you to the airwaves so what should we tackle first the definition of which term would you like to define first that would be a good jumping off point should we start at the far end of the spectrum with um with so, it, I, well, anarchy is an easy one. Okay, right. Well, no, let's define it because we are having some trouble today. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a it's a fairly easy definitional term, right? And I mean, some people may disagree in its interpretation, uh, but an anarchy coming from the Greek uh, root words arkos, which simply means rulers, and the prefix an, which is a a lack of. So anarchy in its most basic form is simply a society with no rulers. So that one is clear. I mean, there there will be endless bickering on about between anarcho-communists and anarcho-capitalists about, you know, whether or not a landlord is a type of ruler or a collective, you know, social structure that maintains order is uh, is a ruler. Uh, I, I think both of them have, uh, you know, substantive points that are addressed against the other uh, in that respect. But at its most base level, that is... Uh, that is what it means. And I, what was this article from? It was from like the New Yorker or something like that. It was from Bloomberg. Bloomberg. That was it. Imagine that. Our book mm-hmm. over at Bloomberg. American yeah. Peoples. Mm-hmm. So okay. So let's um, now let's define libertarianism as um. All right. Let's make a distinction. Let's do the little l libertarian. So what would you what would you be your working definition of a small l libertarian? I, that's a hard one to determine these days. I, anymore, I see it as synonymous with anarcho-capitalism. Okay. Um, that's a very, I would say that's pretty fair. Yeah. 
So the little old libertarian would be an anarcho-capitalist, somebody that believes in the in the free market. Once again, we talked about this last show, the idea that there's some magical controlling force. It's a, it's a human nature thing, I guess, to have some fixated force that controls things that are out of our control or out of our realm of explanation. So we have these um, terms that, that are broadly defined as, um, uh, I guess, everyday interactions with human beings. So... Free market would be an interaction, just like the economy is an interaction. It has nothing to do with numbers. I mean, it has a little bit to do with numbers. It's just, but that's a baseline. It's not what economics is. It's not based on numbers. So anyway, enough of that babbling. Let's move to a, a big L libertarian, so that everybody knows where we're coming from. Um, myself, I'm going to define that, and then I'll kick it to you and see if we coincide here. A big L liberty that I would consider the uh, Barry Goldwater type Republican that would be um, somebody for very staunch like a Reagan Republican, uh, lower taxes. Um, they would want something like a, a fair tax or mainly just lower taxes in general. But more or less I see them as a, um, as a brand that's kind of like Tea Party light, I guess, or – does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I, I mean the the political organizational force of the Libertarian Party and its kind of outlined complaints about the limited or the limited nature or lack thereof of government is is what I would term them as. Yeah, right. I, I think just uh, as a blanket term, minarchist works very well. There we go. Perfect. So somebody that still believes in in the state and but um, hasn't really come to grips, I guess, with the with the idea of, um, of of breaking that uh, the status quo, I guess, from that perspective of having some kind of ruling authority, whether it's uh, a police force or what have you. So they, they look at things completely different. So now that we've got a couple of those terms defined, we want to make sure that people understand that, that what this article did – and um, I'm going to actually pull it up really quick because I want to read some subsections of it. And I want to get your response because if you skimmed it, you, you missed some, some really good propaganda points that I do want to put out. So this will be, once again, as we do uh, kind of impromptu every once in a while, a, a decoding propaganda. So he talks about how any form of – just skimming the first couple of sections. Any form of, once again, governance outside of the status quo is considered radical. Radical libertarians like Ayn Rand, which I think the Ayn Rand philosophy is – you know, to an extent, pretty decent, but um, of course they – I mean being a left-wing uh, establishment um, hack, I guess, paper, that they um, they have to attack. And um, once again, it's not saying that the Koch brothers are great people, but um, that's your punching bag. For the right, it's like that's your, that's your go-to. And so we're skipping a couple of these things except for the fact that I want to talk about um, this article or this subsection where he references – the um, the Koch brothers and also a couple of people that he tries to tie into this idea of libertarian populism. So I'm going to read these couple of sections. It says, some, like the Koch brothers, are economic royalists who repackage trickle-down economics as libertarian populism. Some are the followers of Texas Center Cruz was a libertarian, who the highest aspirations want to shut down government. I don't think that that's what Ted Cruz wants at all. Some resemble Grover Norquist, and some uh, made a career out of trying to drown and civil and um, strangle government. 
At its core is an American value, and an overwhelming state would be unhealthy. And there are plenty of self-described libertarians who have adopted the label mainly because they support same-sex marriage, decry um, the governance or government surveillance. These social libertarians aren't the problem. Here's where it gets fun. It's the nihilist, anti-state libertarians who of the Koch brothers, Cruz, Norquist, Paul, Rand, and Ron alike school who worry us. Okay, so here's where the, the rhetoric starts turning up. Like communism, the philosophy is defective and is <coughs> and it is misreading for the human nature, misunderstanding how societies work. Remember, Mises doesn't understand how societies work at all as as you rub your eyes and <laughs> misleading misunderstanding how societies work and other failure to adapt to changing circumstances. Radical libertarianism assumes that humans are wired to only be selfish and the fact that cooperation is at the, the height of human evolution. Remember, so evolving, we have to cooperate, Josh. You have to cooperate and evolve. It assumes that efficient mechanisms requiring no rulers or enforcers, when in fact they are fragile ecosystems prone to easily overwhelmed by the free rider, free riders, free riders. Excuse me. And is fascinating, <coughs> and is fascinatingly rigid in its instance to a single solution to every problem: roll back the state. And it just keeps getting um, more and more interesting as we kind of go along here. And I'm going to read some other portions of it. But what did you think about what I just read to you, Josh? Well, well I mean, to, to a certain, certain extent, extent – sorry, is that baby monitor anywhere near you? Because this echo is terrible. Oh, is it echoing again? Yeah. Give me a moment. Just go ahead and, go ahead and keep talking. Well, to, to a certain extent, I mean, I, I almost feel like our, our definitions at the beginning – that's much better, thank you, by the way – uh, are kind of all for naught in the sense that this is a very def- grammatically confused article. Uh, what what libertarians are are they really kind of criticizing here? Are they are they criticizing you know uh, minarchist opportunists like the Koch brothers or or the Ted Cruz school? Are they talking about you know anti-state libertarians entirely? Are they talking about objectivists because? They kind of lump them in together as this hodgepodge, and you know there are a lot of ideas that don't communicate effectively within that circle. To a certain extent, I mean, I can understand where the, the, the emotive aspect of this criticism is coming from with regard to big L libertarians, political libertarians, and you know some people within the anarcho-capitalist slash libertarian circle, people like, I guess, the Koch brothers would be considered minarchists to a certain extent, or uh, if we want to expand that group further, people like Doug Casey over at Casey Research, uh, who kind of are, you know, utilize political libertarianism, political libertarianism as to create an environment where, you know, vultures kind of thrive, right? right? And, and to a certain extent, that is the inevitable outcome of big L libertarianism, if, should you maintain the, the, you know, kind of the civil structure right. of government as, as we know it today. So that criticism, I don't think is unwarranted this article just does a piss poor job quite frankly of of outlining that i don't think that that was the intent i do think that the intent of this article is to is to kind of confound the mind uh with regard to some of these ideas and lump things that aren't necessarily you know uh non-contradictory together to create contradictory ideals right exactly and then they once again it's you took a basically you know two or three different um flavors of libertarianism like you mentioned before and you throw them all into this one package to be able to kind of come and build up the straw man and destroy it because that's exactly what this entire argument is. It's basically a straw man, and they even reference a straw man argument at the very beginning because they talk about how 
um, capitalists and pure libertarians say that there's never been um, a real capitalist state. Just like communists argue the same thing. It's a straw man. There's never been a truly communist state. There have been a lot of socialist states. There's been, um, once again, communism in your bedroom and in your you know, in your home life would work very, very well, but applied on a mass scale, it it just doesn't it doesn't hold water just because of the way that the way that it kind of divvies out and and human nature is not fact in like Mises talks about in his books. As I reference him quite a bit, it's it's the only it's the only logical book that I've read that describes how economies of scale work. And and if you understand economies of scale, mm. uh, no, 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 to to me personally, there are others, but of course there are plenty of others, but. This the only one that I've read. It. So, okay. you know, and um, Thomas Sowell's Basics of Economics gave me a foundation, and Mises gave me a little bit more understanding of that. So it was, um, it's the idea that that human exchange. Uh, I guess the simple question here, in, in a libertarian point of view, does human exchange need to be moderated and, and moderated by the state? I guess would be a best way to describe it. So. Oh, at least in my opinion. So um, moving on, this is a subsection of the article I wanted to read, and then I'll read a couple other sections, and we'll kind of move on from this. Oh, here's what the title of the subsection is, Josh. Extreme Positions. Some libertarians will claim that they are arguing against a straw man, that there is no serious adherent to their philosophy and advocates for the extreme positions that we describe. The public record of extreme statements by the likes of Cruz, Norquist, and Paul speaks for itself. These are all extreme statements, even though they don't reference any specific statements. They're just you know extreme statements like these people. And then here's my favorite part, Josh. Reasonable people debate on how to regulate and control and, and how government can mostly effective do its work, not to whether regulated at all or whether government should even exist. See, reasonable people, you know, people like you and me. That's what we do. These extreme people, you know, talking about we need more freedom in the market and we need to have more of our tax money and we probably shouldn't be paying a private holding company our taxes and yada, yada, yada. These people are just – that's just an extreme point of view. So what do you think of that, Mr. Mr. Wiley? As we all get lumped into proverbial extremists but basically would align with a lot of what the great debate was 200 years ago to found this nation. It's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to Bloomberg's credit in that in that capacity, there are very few people that actually spoke out against the existence of of government, you know, at the founding of America. So, you know, to a certain extent, that that aspect of their of their straw man that they're erecting after first, you know, kind of citing the straw man does kind of hold true throughout American history. I think I think I do think there's a lot of deification of the founding fathers that needs to stop within the alternative media. But in terms of the, the statement in and of itself, yeah, I mean, it's, again, this kind of confounding of, of grammar. Exactly who are you criticizing in this, in, the, in this scenario? And then, of course, Bloomberg outlines it for you. It's anyone who does not or who, who questions the fallacy of, of authority right. in that sense, who questions the state. Um, the alternative to this extremism is an evolving – listen, this is so great. This is such propaganda. The alternative to this is an evolving blend of freedom and cooperation. The relationship between societal happiness and economic success can be plotted on a bell curve. And the sweet spot is way away from the extremes of pure liberty and pure communitarianism. This is where true citizenship and healthy capitalism are found. 
That is not out of 1984. That is actually out of an article that was read, like written yeah. two days ago. I mean, to a certain extent, they're promoting fascism here. And I mean, the 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 next sentence is, of course, true citizenship enables a society to thrive for pre- precisely the reasons that communism and ra- radical libertarianism cannot. So, what are they doing here? They are drastically confusing grammatical terms and definitions at the outset of their article to erect a straw man that they later destroy. And at the end here, they are giving... Man first, that's even, that's even more brilliant. They reference the straw man and then destroy it. Yeah, but, but, and, but the, the latter half of this article, I think, is what's most important, where after they've kind of destroyed this, this muddied idea that they didn't present accurately, now they're outlining their grammar for you. They're defining things like what sensible government is, what true citizenship is uh, true as in you know like the as in affirming a positive state so there is no questioning that that is that happens during the declarative sentence aspect right. of this article and that's kind of the point of it all right is right. to is to confuse and then give clarity by you know uh presenting this kind of false idealism i am so glad that bloomberg is here to tell us what to do with our lives i mean where would we be i have no idea that was, a, that was a great synopsis, though, man. That was very spot on because, um, you know, it tells you what being a true citizen is. It tells you about what a reasonable person is. Once again, they define the terms as they go along, and, uh, yeah, that was beautiful, man. Well, re- decoding propaganda, again, mark it on your calendars, everybody. Share this with people you know, people you like, and people that actually want to question um, people in authority. How dare we? All right. And never and never forget that Bloomberg uh as a media entity was uh started with seed cap uh seed capital from Merrill Lynch. So listen. Don't have, they they just look they just print me my credit card and I go charge stuff on it and everything's fine. And it's just, it's just beautiful. All right, let's see what we got here. What um what do you want to talk about next? Here, let's go to this one. This ought to be fun. And then we'll get into the NSA stuff because the NSA is just kinda of like it's like beating a dead horse. At this point, people, if you don't realize you're being tracked and traced, you're probably lumped in with – if you've ever crossed a guy named Hobby before in your life, you're probably on a list somewhere, and all your data is now captured. So, Or if you searched for things like Tails or Tor or Bitcoin, for example. I mean, I'm not saying that those are necessarily all solutions in and of themselves, but, yeah, there is a – there's a demonization of, of even searching these terms anymore. I thought that was one of the really interesting things about the Snowden revelations, Jake. I'm sorry if I'm taking this in a, in a direction that you don't Very cool. Let's do it. necessarily want to. But Hello, our man. It's a laid back. Just relax. Let's do it. Yeah, but, but when, uh, after the Snowden revelations came out, I forget who it was that published this article, but there was a, a marked drop in, in searching searches for what could be deemed intelligence-related... Uh, uh, search terms, right? So things that would hypothetically get you on a list post Snowden, if we want to define the world in those terms. Uh, so that it's very interesting in that the predictive programming of the psyop that I believe Edward Snowden was uh, that th- a certain part of it was a success. Sure, you got you got people to stop investigating things that would have uh, you know otherwise gotten them on a list with with all these web craw- NSA web crawlers, but now they're not searching for it anymore. So. So it was a um, – I don't know, man. I, I really do – you know, Snowden's an admitted agent, so what, where does that leave you? And what's so amazing is that, like you and I talked about the other night, 
The childlike naivete of the public has no idea that you can be an even double or triple agent. They just believe that that is something that happens in the movies, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's just – it's my well, – think- I do think it's it's potentially more than just the public at large. I mean, that was one of the most disturbing things that I witnessed at Porkfest, not this year, but last year, was uh, during the group photograph, everyone holding up these signs that said, I am Edward Snowden. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, judge exactly how disturbing that, that was in terms of like, okay, the grammar on this guy has not been answered yet. He has so far, as far as I'm concerned, he's, you know, he's gone from America and at the time he was in Hong Kong. He's not yet left the Anglo-American establishment and I still have not seen 99.8% of the documents that he has supposedly released. The ones being circled around mainstream media right now are revelations that, quite frankly, were made as many as 10 decades ago by, by certain whistleblowers. Uh, so it wasn't a very substantive case, yet people ate it up and continue to eat it up. And now, what I found even more disturbing going back this uh, passport fest, I even talked to a few individuals who, when you kind of enter into this discussion about Snowden with them, and his potential of being kind of this deep political actor, uh, they, they give you this response, well, it's like, it's like, well, yeah, that may be the case, but, you know, the, he's a whistleblower that people know, so we have to just take advantage of the PSYOP as it's been presented to us, you know, maybe not stating it in those explicit terms, but this kind of acceptance uh, that, that you have to take advantage of these kind of deep political act, acts and actors as they're presented to you, which is, again, very disturbing in and of itself. Uh, that that there's an unwillingness to find truth right. necessarily, but they're far more concerned with just creating an alternative right. uh, story to the one that's being presented as opposed to getting to the bottom of things. But I guess that's what the Research Collective is all about. Yeah, and it's also, um, you know, you see that with 9-11 truth and all kinds of other aspects. You know, it's like um, the first thing that anybody's going to try to jam down your throat is Building 7, and it's like, no, no, no. There's there's like a almost an admitted paper trail of 9/11 to show you what happened and the sequence that it happened and why it happened. And well, but it, I agree with you. But in in those terms, like Building Seven is still stands as kind of uh, a piece of evidence. I mean, it's a piece of a much larger puzzle, but it's still a very integral one, right? Whereas Edward Snowden to the history of of NSA subprojects that are kind of data mining Americans uh, ad nauseum, right. uh, there's not a whole lot of importance in terms of the revelations that have made th- have been made thus far. So mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, you delete Building 7 from the history of 9-11 truth, whatever that m- may be, uh, then your case gets sub- you know substantially diminished. Whereas if you delete Edward Snowden from the history of NSA whistleblowing revelations, then you lose nothing. So... <laughs> That's very true because, I mean, like, you know, some of the stuff that I was reading today in this article, I'm, and, and I, I, you know, I wanted to touch on it, I guess, but this is all stuff that came out, like, this came out, like, 10 years ago. Like, William Benny was, was he, he was over the international, he was over the, what was it, international surveillance? He was, like, the head yeah. of the department. And, yeah, William Benny, Russell Tice, I mean, saying very much the same thing. These guys, I mean, Snowden's like a he's a he's a nobody, and I think that the the fallacy of Snowden is so great in the fact that you know, kind of like what you and I were talking about, it's just like he's a middle aged guy. I mean, you look at somebody like William like William Benny, he doesn't look like James Bond. He doesn't look like somebody that's really gonna you know get you fired up about America. And this is Snowden. This is a young guy. He's gonna go in there covertly 
steal all this stuff on a flash drive, get out, you know, release it all to the public, be the hero, save save the world. You know, they said that they were going to have revelations that were going to stop a war over in Iraq because of his revelations. I mean, give me a break, people. Well, I mean, when's the story going to end? When are you, when are you guys going to quit watching GI Joe? We're not. We're, this isn't GI Joe. This is. But that's the <laughs> that's the problem is that the American people are inundated with GI Joe type quite frankly shit and they're not you know perceptive enough to pick up on this stuff just yet i mean tom secker over at spyculture.com right. has done a, an amazing amount of work kind of detailing the psyop of edward snowden i mean he he uses the term of is edward snowden a false flag posing that question and if we just look at solely the predictive programming aspect of Edward Snowden, just a couple years in advance of, mm-hmm. uh, of these supposed revelations, we have in, the, in, in Britain, we have a Snoops episode uh, about, you know, this, this super hacker that hacks into MI5 and gains all these intelligence files. You have a, a running theme throughout the first episode, or the first season, excuse me, of, of, AB, or of HBO's The Newsroom. Uh, kind of about this this NSA whistleblower who leaks these documents about you know the Panopticon being erected at the NSA. Skyfall. You have James Skyfall with the creation of the Javier Bard- Javier Bardem character, and because of nobody really cognitively processes that oh those three things came before Snowden, right? right? But because that's kind of preparing you for for this uh, for this grand unveiling. Whereas, you know, if you're looking back, you know, with a human mind that has far less clarity than a search engine, you just kind of assume that those things took place afterwards. Right. Uh, when really the idea of this all-omniscient, you know, all-powerful hacker who can, you know, either, you know, can create political revolutions and take down government institutions all in one fell swoop, um, you've, been, you've been being mentally prepped for that at the very least since uh, films like Enemy of the State. Right. With, um, with 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 yeah yeah well and the the hacker character in that movie is of course played by Gene Hackman Gene Hackman uh, and the character's name in that movie is Edward now am I saying that that is necessarily uh, uh, you know is it a predictive programming event you know going back ten years potentially uh, but at the very least that name was clearly used opportunistically. Uh, in in the creation of the Snowden character, because if you think that Edward Snowden is his real name, whoever you're looking at on that screen, you are a very confused individual indeed. <laughs> oh, dude, man, I went to high school with him. He's completely real. He's legit. He's legit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he did. He just he stayed inside all day to program in C++ because he loved it so much. And that's it. That's it. Well, Jake, I think it's funny that you bring that up, though, because there is kind of a, there's a trail of the character of Edward Snowden's existence on the Internet before the Snowden revelations. And he really is this kind of confused mix of extreme, you know, kind of cyberpunk, anarcho-digitalist, uh, and, and security state advocate on different message boards, right? He's, he's adopting different personas based on the, com- the community that he's interfacing with. So, I mean, that should be setting off alarm bells as you look back on it in retrospect. But, again, not enough people will do the grammar on Edward Snowden. No, no, no. Come on, man. It's America. It's Fourth of July, man. Snowden Snowden gave us our freedom. Unreal, man. Unreal. So, I mean, what do, where do we go from here with the surveillance state? Does it, I mean, Have you noticed any... I haven't noticed any discernible difference in the public, the way that the, the people you know talk about it. And it's like... You know, if you watch something like Fox News or CNN, it's just like the latest Snowden revelation. It'll be like a story for, 
you know, two segments or something like that, and then the public just drops it. It's just it's astonishing. It really well, is. Jake, this is something that I really want to flesh out later on on One Step Me, the research collective that we're doing together later on. But I just it's a question that popped into my mind earlier this week, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Is the idea of the cyberpunk an aspect of predictive programming in and of itself? And by cyberpunk, I mean, you know, this kind of character who may be a human, it might be an android, it might be more transhumanist, but it's someone who has such a control over technology that they can subvert any system that's been placed in front of them. So is this almost kind of fomenting this idea that while the panopticon may, may be, you know, actively being erected around you digitally, there will always be people that can kind of help you out of it. So creating the idea that there will be an underground savior from a hacking perspective that once the Panopticon is built, don't worry, somebody will be there to rescue all of us from the Panopticon. Well, mm-hmm. I think that that's, um, you know, I don't know whether it's art dictating life or, or vice versa, but you see that in a lot of in a lot of movies that have, I mean anything that has to do with hacking you know, Elysium was kind of the same way there was this underground rogue group of people that were going to get people to Elysium and that yeah it's an excellent excellent example of the cyberpunk meme and the um God there was another there was another movie and I cannot think of it and I think that it had I think that it had Hugh Jackman in it or or Nicolas Cage I don't know why I'm conflating the two of those guys but one of them was a he was supposed to be this hacker, and they gave him like this tryout, and they were either going to kill him, or he could hack this one little code, and he could get in. And it always glorifies the uh, the hacker as like you, like you said, like the loner, the guy that's going to come through and save the day, the guy that's living in his mom's basement, that's just coding just because he knows that one day that his talents are going to be worth something. You know, obviously you've got the Matrix with Neo and stuff. So absolutely, I think that the cyberpunk could be a meme that could be propagated in order to be you know implanted in somebody's uh, subconscious as a as a recall for later and um if you guys oh man it's so crazy that we can even talk like this and and, and we're not talking fairy tales well but i think we're at the point where we need to kind of start discussing these things in a more serious level um because if we just you know take keep those movie examples in mind but then apply them to what's going on today uh with with groups like anonymous and more more uh you know uh that one that sticks out in my mind more so is LulzSec, uh, this security group that supposedly went around hacking government institutions, uh, corporations, and government partners like Stratfor and releasing what could be deemed as kind of destructive documents. Uh, then you come to find out later on that a, lot, that a good portion of these hackers within this group were FBI agents. Right, so you're kind of creating this environment where where these hackers feel kind of safe and at ease when really they're infiltrators all around us. So I mean, and as we see, I be like that, man. Why, I mean, everything, everything. They got their hands in everything. It's amazing. I mean, kudos to you guys. You guys really do run the you do run the Panopticon pretty smoothly. I mean, you you run all the terrorists, you run all the drugs in. I mean, I mean, you guys are you guys are on your game. You're on your game for sure. It's uh, it's amazing, and I know that you guys probably monitor this show, but we don't talk about anything that's not already publicized, save a couple of a couple of tidbits. But I mean, uh, it's kind of depressing, man. It's kind of depressing that we can that we have to talk about. Yeah, we're getting probably psych warfared by um, a governmental entity or some kind of uh, subcontractor for our government in order to keep us in the uh, 
in the realm of the status quo. It's that's really kind of fucked up. To... I mean, well, it's an analogy I've used multiple times on various shows, but I'll say it again here for the sake of your listeners, Jake. And that is that I feel no malice towards the starving wolf that rips me to shreds in the middle of the Canadian boreal forest, because that wolf is a predator. And if I don't have the means of self-defense, you know, readily accessible to me, then that predator will kill me. And it's not because it does, it's not empathetic. It just can't feel those things. Right. Uh, and, and there are individuals who might be termed psycho or sociopathic, and there are institutions which are almost always psychopathic in nature uh, that are just like starving wolves in the middle of the Canadian boreal forest. It's not the fault of the wolf for ripping you to shreds. It's the fault of the individuals who fall victim to the wolf without having the means of physical self-defense. And in this case, we're talking about intellectual self-defense, but very much the same as your bowels can be ripped from your body by the, the sharp teeth of a wolf, uh, your mind, too, can be ripped to shreds by mental malware if you're not protecting it actively. Uh, and it shows like this that, that you know, give people these, ter- uh, you know, means of mental self-defense and mental malware protection, but not enough people consume them at this uh, stage in the game, so... We are your disc cleanup, everybody. We are the disc defraggers. There you go. Just dropping some some nerd lingo on everybody. But no, it's a, it's a very it's a very good point to to understand or to let people understand that you know that um, this isn't something that we do just to get ratings. Obviously, it's not something very fun to talk about. I mean. I'd love to live in a world where I don't get psyoped out by my own, you know, governing class. That'd be kind of cool. That'd be kind of cool to actually have some kind of free, you know, flow of information without it being monitored, tracked, traced everywhere. But that's just, it's not the world we live in. And unfortunately, much like they say in V for Vendetta, you only have to go and look in the mirror to see who's responsible. So am I still going fluctuating in and out on you, by the way? Uh, a little bit, but not nearly as much as you were at the beginning of this conversation. So that's good. People, if anybody's a board tech or something like that, just Skype me. Send me a friend request on Facebook or shoot me a Twitter. This is getting very frustrating. Anyway, all right, we got a few minutes left, man. we got 20 minutes left in the show. Let's, um, speaking of Land of the Free, Home of the Slaves, um, let me read this um, portion of this article for you, and then we'll chat about this because it kind of ties into what we're talking about here. Airports facing chaos after U.S. declares it will not allow uncharged cell phones or laptops onto flights bound to America, with iPhones and Galaxies at the top of the hit list. There's a new directive from the TSA. Um, actually, I'm just going to start reading the article for you, buddy, and then I'm going to stop here after a couple of paragraphs. The U.S. has declared that it will not allow mobile phones, especially iPhones and Samsungs, onto U.S. planes from airports in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa as a device, if the devices are not charged. The new measure, which is bound to cause some chaotic scenes at airports around the globe, is part of the U.S. Transportation Security Administration's effort to boost surveillance amid concerns of terrorists plotting to blow up another airliner, probably with missiles that we gave them. As part of the increased scrutiny in certain airports, security agents have asked travelers to turn on their electronic devices at checkpoints, and if they do not power on, the device is not allowed on the planes, the TSA said, because now the TSA is just God, and they can just make up whatever laws they want. This is awesome. No doubt the measures, the new measures have the potential to create frantic searches for chargers at airports, and one U.S. source familiar with the matter said that laptop computers are um, also among the devices 
security screeners may request the passengers to turn on. The officials are concerned that a cell phone, tablet, laptop, or other electronic device, like your vibrator, ladies, could be used as a bomb in the Yemen-based Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or the Islamist or Islamist um, or Islamist Front, Al Qaeda's affiliate in Syria. Here you go, Josh, and we'll stop after this little statement. In 2009, a Yemen-linked ba- bomb maker, Ibar Al-Assar, built an underwear bomb and used in the failed effort to bring down a Detroit-bound airliner and his devices were implicated in other plots. So they reference the underwear bomber that the State Department or some other high-level official got on the plane as he was drugged up and tried to light C4. Well, they they reference two uh, deep political, deep state events in 9-11 and the underwear bomber as justification for this. And obviously, uh, it's not for kind of preventative measures. Uh, the, you know, your cell phone being on as it goes through these devices is uh, as near-field communication devices and chips are being implanted into cell phones and soon will be integrated into airport security systems, security systems of all kinds. Uh, this is just another way to get uh, their hands on, on the data of individuals. And of course, this measure will soon make its way to American shores, but you know you got to test this stuff out internationally, right? On the on the more terroristic nations first, or the more brown nations. That is so ridiculous. And I'll continue reading a little bit of this because this is just so it's almost comical at this point. The Islamist Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda's affiliate, is involved in fighting with the Syrian rebels to overthrow Bashir al-Assad and also thought to be plotting an airliner attack, according to intelligence reports. Josh, tell everybody at home who's playing the home game what's so funny about that. The fact that they're talking about the Al-Qaeda that's fighting Bashir al-Assad and that we have intelligence that knows what they're doing. Why is that kind of humorous? Well, I mean, anyone who knows anything about uh, al-Nusra would know that they are, again, an al-Qaeda front organization that's been funded, trained, and supported by American intelligence for quite some time. Uh, so that's a very disturbing trend. Oh, gosh, we got intelligence on them. We- <laughs> I, I do think that there is a, there's a larger question that needs to start being asked by people in this respect, though, and not just because, you know, airports are going to become a, sater, a center for kind of data mining uh, things that are stored on your, you know, your hard disk or your uh, your uh, solid state disk on your cell phone, uh, and that is, you know, when it becomes, when it is no longer advantageous to own these technologies at all, uh, and kind of wait for the market or be an active participant in a market creating alternatives to the Panopticon-esque technologies, and I keep using that term because. I want people to look it up, and not just on the surface level. Investigate Jeremy Bentham, the guy who coined the term, and what he was all about as well. Um, but when it, when we, if your if your parents would have worked hard, you wouldn't be here slaving away. Yeah, courtesy of the Anglo-American establishment, right? A good Oxford-educated boy, <laughs> all souls college, nonetheless. You're so crazy. That's mm. theory talk. But but. 
But really, and this is something that we talked about on We Are Not Cattle a few days ago when we were talking about, you know, anarcho-capitalism and their kind of willingness to embrace aspects of the transhumanism movement. I mean, maybe not overtly, um, but certainly as a matter of kind of promoting their revolutionary ideology. Um, Is there a point at which, you know, you have to say, this is not a technology that I need in my life, even if it may very well be a good tool for kind of spreading the message. Uh, what's the trade-off? Um, because I think that as we start to evaluate that kind of question to ourselves year after year after year, we'll find that as technology becomes far more integrated, when your cell phone becomes your Google Glass, which becomes your brain implant, there are still going to be people out there that say that these are wonderful tools for activism. And you kind of have to tap your brakes a little bit and say, well, what, what am I trading for that incredible access to other human minds? Am I trading access to my mind by organizations that aren't necessarily human? <sighs> I think that eventually that we're all going to have to come to a point where it's, where we're asking tougher questions of ourselves. And I, and I, and I hate to say this, but um, America's not mature enough at this point to do that. We're like, um, I don't know, I would say about 10 years ago, we were like a 13-year-old little boy running around like a chicken with his head cut off looking for mommy, looking for daddy government to protect us. And now, as a collective, um, I would say that we're a 15-year-old. We're still confused as to what we really want, but we understand that what we've got kind of sucks. And that um, now we're having ideological battles from people that go and get in stances from whether it's the right or the left, that uh, that really make no no qualms about coming in and having a conversation. It's all about it's all about uh, dogma. It's all about my idea, not your idea. Your idea sucks. Let me tell you about my idea. That's um, I think uh, un- very unfortunate, and it also you know stems to the fact that we don't communicate with each other in person anymore. And I think that getting back to your original statement, when are we going to find that? Maybe all this self-empowering technology is actually self-deprecating at some point. Well, I mean, I think that it's it's hard to make as a blanket statement, but I am going to make it nonetheless, and hopefully we'll, you'll receive some feedback about it, Jake. Um, but you kind of have to ask yourself how much of what is going on right now with various activist communities and their interface with the Internet uh, how much of that is a deliberate dehumanizing, deliberately dehumanizing process that kind of promotes a divide-and-conquer methodology without really having to use the Hegelian dialectic to uh, manipulate it? Push any buttons at all. They just, they just basically let you get in your own camp, and you, and you do exactly what tribes have always done. And well, that's what, Yeah, go ahead, man. I was just going to say, more importantly, they give you a medium that takes away everything human about communication. And that's why I think that I was, I was actually going to make a post. That, uh, it's really funny you mentioned this. I'll probably make it tomorrow um, saying that I will not be getting into any political or philosophical debates on Facebook. I won't be commenting anymore because we lose the medium of emotion as well as um, seeing people's facial expressions, voice inflections. None of that stuff is exchanged over the medium of Facebook. And or or any social media for that instance, unless you're talking about Vine or something like that, and then it's only seven seconds, so you can't really get a good rebuttal in. But I think I'm done, man. I think that I've come to the point where it's it's just a big emotional circle jerk. 
for a lot of people. And whether it's you going out and trying to spew your dogma over me or you wanting to to bash the way that I view the world and what I think would be a, a, a successful alternative to what we have now, it's counterproductive. It's counterproductive for, for human development. It's counterproductive for growth. If you want to call into the show and have a conversation, hell, I'm down for that. I, I Actually, I would I would welcome people that disagree with our philosophy to call into the show. I welcome for people that disagree with certain aspects of my philosophy or certain aspects of what I do on the show. Tell me this sucks. Tell me this is great. Do whatever, but at least voice your opinion. Don't just hide behind a computer screen because I think that that's I think that's the next step for us on kind of what I guess you were hinting at, Josh, is that the next step for the human population is to not just get angry and type on your cell phones and be a keyboard activist. It's not just to get out and get in the street. It's to engage and communicate and learn from one another and then grow and try to make something better. Why does it always have to be capitalism, communism, communitarianism? Voluntarism or constitutionalism. Why can't it be something different? Why can't there be something something else? I mean, Jesus Christ, people! All those concepts are, you know, two hundred, if not a thousand years old. It's, well, it's time for something that we can all kind of move forward and 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 have a debate over, not like some EU bureaucratic, you know, behind the scenes bullshit where nobody gets a vote. Well, I think the debate ultimately should be through experimentation, and there will be communities that set themselves up as communistic or minarchistic or anarcho-capitalistic or anarcho-syndicalistic, and they're going to find that as they interact with one another, they're going to need to make compromises on their beliefs, you know? Like, if, if the minarchist society has all the tin in the world or the communist society has all the copper and you're in an anarcho-capitalist society, and you want to exchange on a free basis with them, you'll be compromising some of your principles simply by doing this. So, you know, you're going to find that a world in a world of dogmas, uh, you know, you, there, there has to be some middle ground on a pragmatic level, and you can be as purist as you want within the confines of your kind of geographic region should you be able to kind of centralize belief in that manner, or at least, uh, you know, kind of commonalize, uh, you know, find commonality within beliefs. Mm-hmm. in that kind of region, regionalistic structure. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, there, there can't be, you know, this, this kind of ideological puritanism because to create, I think that there, there's this, you hear it a lot, the term anarcho-syndicalist society or anarcho-capitalist society, society which is, you know, in, inherently in its grammar a misnomer because, you know, to, to get everyone to that stage, at least at this point, there are people who would have to be kicked and dragged through the mud to get them there. Uh, and that kind of spits in the face of, of a large degree of anarcho-capitalistic principles. Uh, so, I mean, that's why, taking it full circle, Jake, I find this Bloomberg, you know, article uh, very disappointing because that phrase, libertarians are the new communists, it's very, um, it's like it got a very shock value kind of, kind of uh, you know, title but there, that's a that's a statement. If it were posed as a question, that could you know relate some form of commonalities. If you were if you were strict in your definition of libertarianism and you took it you know point by point and said, well, here are the kind of compromises that are going to have to be made, knowing that we don't live in a society where you know goods and services and resources are equitably distributed. So even in a in an environment without the state, 
you're still going to be dealing with these cartel-based families. So you have a choice to make whether or not you want to compromise with them or whether you don't. And right. some places are going to compromise and they're going to be, you know, more successful initially, but they'll find themselves in chains quicker than the people who didn't, yada, yada, yada. There are, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of questions that, that could be inserted into that dialogue. And they're just questions that if you consider, if you put a label on your chest and it ends with an ism, then you're already on the wrong path because you've replaced one, you know, security blanket in terms of ideology with another, as opposed to being anti-ideological and investigating these beliefs not with their names but with their ideas. Right. It's like when it was, um, and thank you for turning me on to this. The um, the Malthus uh, essays on population. I'm about halfway through with them. Very fascinating to hear the ideas that were, and once again, think about it in the context of when these when these ideas were written down and and who these people are. And I think that that's very, very crucial to understand when you're when you're talking about relationships between people and and relationships between ideology. Go and research who these people were. And it's like you brought up to me. I I never even knew this. And uh, I, I liked Mises's books a lot. I thought they were very enlightening from a from a perspective of of human understanding and, and human involvement. I think that if if everybody read and took away certain tidbits of human action, I think we would get a lot further in society because it really does explain how how we're tied to one another and how you know the basics of economics work. But I think that the is the people that give these guys funding and the people that that promote the as a spouse. Just like um, when I when I referenced on the message board today that you know um, Karl Marx was an agent of the British East Empire or the British East India Company, and so you know when when you take it from that context, who is he really? He's creating another uh, another path to serfdom. It doesn't matter which way that it, you go, you always end up in in slavery, and it just depends on your um, I guess your your magnitude of uh, your change, or the heaviness of your chains, is what you're willing to live with. In communism, your your chains are very, very heavy, and in, in a um, in a free market society, your chains are very light. But you're still, you know, at some point, you're still, like you said, Josh, you're still going to be indebted to the cartel some some way, shape, or form. There's no way to really escape unless we all make a break with the system together. And uh, we're once again, like the Rose said, we're very far from that point in human development. To where we we don't have any rulers. Once again, getting back to the definition of anarchy, we don't have any rulers. We just have, um, I guess, ideas that we can all espouse and agree to. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, if we take Thoreau, his body of work, but specifically on Walden Pond and on civil disobedience, and you kind of combine them into sort of a revolutionary manual, sure. you realize that, you know, aside from all the pros and uh, in Walden and how Thoreau spent his free time, the ultimate kind of crux of, of the situation is that he's saying, look, the basic necessities for human survival, a roof over your head, a means to heat yourself if you're in a cold climate, food in your belly and water are not difficult to attain. They don't require much time, much effort, much capital expenditure. Those things have increased slightly since Thoreau's time, but it's still attainable for every uh, you know American for the most part, unless, of course, you're crammed into a a small apartment and you own nothing and you're, you're in the city, in which case I would recommend that you, you get out. Um, but, but what he's saying is that these basics are very easy to account for. And what happens when you've got the basics handled? 
uh, and you've learned, you know, you've gone through the critical thinking process of creating the basics for yourself, and that's that your mind has a lot of free time to contemplate bigger questions. Uh, and, and we live in a society where we are, we are running after the basics on a daily basis uh, all the time. And if even, even as you're still chasing those daily basics, people who have them kind of accounted for uh, don't use their free time to kind of educationally edify themselves. They use it to distract themselves from the kind of horridness of their situation, uh, which gets down to this kind of constant battering of the human psyche over many, many decades. Um, but it's, it's something that I think more people need to take to heart because I don't think that feeding, you know, yourself and your family and, and as you can, your local community, I don't think that those are, those are ideas that have an ideological axe to grind, right? They're just kind of, they're just basic necessities. So whether they're being produced by anarcho-communists or anarcho-capitalists or minarchists, uh, it, it's just something that, that delivers a net good to society and there's, uh, that that's that's where you have to start. You have to start with the commonalities. The 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 division is just that. It's division, and mostly it's in your own mind. Mm-hmm. It's it's on a social networking forum. It's on a Facebook comment thread. And what do all of those things bring as net value to society? Absolutely nothing. Zero. That's right. Absolutely nothing. And I hate to call out Facebook activists like this so directly, but if you're if you are a Facebook activist, like. Get the fuck off Facebook and go do something meaningful with your life because I don't give a shit. How, I'm excuse my French here, but it works uh, me up. Well, yeah, well, well, um, go ahead, man. I just I don't give a shit how many Facebook followers or commenters you have, right? It's if you're doing nothing to promote the society that you want to live in actively outside of the digital realm, then all you're doing is is feeding the the the, the digital panopticon. That's it. And you once yeah I mean you guys hear me talk about it at nauseam talk to people in grocery store lines just and interact with with people in society we can't lose that and I think that we're losing I'm too busy arguing with this ancom on Facebook though <laughs> while I'm in the checkout line Jake <laughs> typing my thumbs away that's uh, so sad I mean we're losing our humanity by by um, debating frivolous, uh, once again, frivolous dogma that's never going to go anywhere. Like you said, if we start with the commonalities and, and come from that perspective of what can we do to make the community better and just start small. What can you do to make your community better? What can you do to make your life better? And then once you get your life taken care of, you take it to the next step and then you go further and further. And I think that oh, anybody wants to understand how um, the Panopticon really one of the best speeches I've ever heard on television. I just watched Josh uh, season three, episode ten of The Wire, where he has to come clean about the uh, the drug free zone, and he gives the uh, the yeah. he's not a good police officer, and talks about what he used to do and how that how that you you start using the word and the term war, and they're gonna and they're gonna treat it like a war. They're gonna have good guys and bad guys. He goes, and then people used to walk the street and be part of the community, and that's what we're promoting here. Just be part of the community again. You know, interact with your fellow human beings. You're going to find out that you got a lot more in common with a communist, a revolutionary communist, than you probably do with anyone. So go from there, and then learn from each other. You might you might have to you know unbuckle your shoelaces and just say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to try your world for a second. Let me walk in your shoes. Let me try it out. So. Josh, we got 60 seconds left. Uh, closing comments, and then we're uh, we're going to be out for the show. 
Well, I'd just like to pose this, you know, very basic hypothetical. If you had an anarcho-communist society on one side of a river and an anarcho-capitalist society on another, and you have your two harvest seasons, and the anarcho-communist community does terribly, and the anarcho-capitalist community produces more than enough, uh, would, if you were a member of that anarcho-capitalist community, would you, you know, have it have the human decency to to help get those anarcho-communists through this this kind of hard stretch, you better. I I mean I I'd like to think that more people would, but now what do you think? I I you know what I would pick, but let the people know. Yeah, I mean uh, my little dirt patch heaven would go to I guess anyone who needs it if uh, if my needs are taken care of, but. But that's I don't know is that um is that like valor? What would that be considered? Altruism. Probably like a, I was looking for a more chivalristic term, but you can you can just go with altruism. That, that's pretty much works. It's um it's sad that we don't we don't uh, we don't live in a society like that anymore. I don't know if it's uh through the mass mind control programming or what it is through the idea of promotion of self and self worth and self gratification. I don't know if that's what destroyed it or what. Well, I just think that ultimately it's this evolution. There are so many people now that an- understand anarchy with their minds, and it's time to understand it with your heart as well. I would agree. I would agree. Truer words have never been spoken. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Uh, that's it for the show, everybody. Uh, I got no closing comments. I think I've pretty much said my piece at the very first of the show. You guys know where I stand on a lot of these issues. I just wish that we could um, we could have a a deeper conversation rather than you know who do you think uh, who do you think the dogs are going to pick up in the off season or you know stuff like that? I, I really do wish that we could not just politically, but I think that it, um, I think that we need to have a, a deeper conversations about what goes on on this planet, who suffers, and why, and is there anything that we can do to fix it? Because I mean, if you're just if we're sitting there watching television, we're not doing what we can do to to better this world, and I think that's really really sad. Because with all the with all the great tools that we have here in America, we tend to we tend to just kind of sit on them and enjoy them for ourselves. And you know, well, I'm glad I'm not that guy. I think that's the American motto that I coined a couple of years ago. Glad that's not me. Anytime you see like an American watching some guy just get beat up by a cop for no reason, or get tased for no reason, that's the only thing that goes through an American's head. Man, I'm glad that's not me. Yeah, well, when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession, and when you lose your job, it's a depression, right? Yeah, there it is. Oh, yeah. it's so beautiful. Anyway, that's it for the show, everybody. Check us out on Thursday night. Um, also, check out One Step Beyond dot me to see the research collected as we get it going and um first podcast josh we're going to cut it this week um i'm going to give you guys some some background on what the research collective is also the explanation of the logo because uh it needs to be clarified what the logo is so that we don't have somebody trolling us with some illuminati misinformation garbage it's simple-minded anyway but, um, yeah, so we'll be releasing that sometime this week. Uh, check out my work, wearenotcattle.net. Uh, follow me on Twitter, wearenotcattle, the number one. Like me on Facebook. And uh, peace, love, and liberty, everybody. Get out there and give somebody a hug tomorrow. It might change your life. Take care, everybody.